Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. These uh, two particular passages from the Torah that we're starting out with, the Ha'azinu, which means listen, and also the Vizot uh, Habaracha, which means uh, this is the blessing. These closeouts, the last days of Moshe's life, and this is, again, the, the holy handoff from the, the man of God, as we see him introduced uh, at the end of the book of Devarim, and then handed off to Yehoshua, or as it became shortened over time, Yeshua. So, Yehoshua, Yeshua, it's the same name, just one is shortened from the other. So, thus you get the picture that Yehoshua is, his name means salvation. So, Thus, you see the picture of Yehoshua, the, the human man, is going to be taking Israel into the land. And one of the, I guess you could say, some of the highlights of the first passage, the Ha'azinu passage, is you see that the foretelling, the song of Moshe, is, you could say it was sort of like a dirge, because it's not a happy tune. It's not a happy tune. It basically, like, you know, you're all going downhill. Oh, yes, you are. But the thing is, is that it's not just dancing on the grave of Israel, but saying, when you reach bottom, remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. That should kind of sound somewhat similar. Remember the... Yeshua's parable of the prodigal son is that when the younger son, when he had squandered everything, found himself there with the pigs, wishing he could at least have some slop, tasty slop, but he couldn't even get any of the tasty slop, anything they were feeding the pigs, even food for pigs, he wasn't able to get. And he realized, you know, what did I do? I just threw all this away. I had it so great where I was at before. Why did I ever run away? So what you saw is with the parable of the prodigal son, what was the younger son reaction? He's like, you realize where he was at, how far he had fallen, how much he had lost. And so... He said, I'm going to go back to my father. But was that a going back to his father with a, um, a lot of arrogance? Was that uh, a lot of arrogance that he was going back saying, you know, hey, dad, aren't you just so happy to have me back because I'm so wonderful? Was that his attitude going back? No, he had his whole speech planned. He was like the whole speech planned about... Hey, I'm not worthy to be called your son. 
But while he was on his way, you see the picture. Uh, and it's been illustrated in song and such so greatly is that the picture of the father seeing him at the distance and then running to meet his son. And that is a picture of what you get. That's why this particular Shabbat is called the Shabbat of Comfort, the Shabbat Nachamu, where you have in the midst of this foretelling of disaster that's going to come to the people of God, yet you're saying, remember where you came from. Remember how far you've fallen. And you can go back. And if you want to go back, you will see that the Father is actually going to run for you. And what do you see in the prophets? You see, especially when you talk about uh, some of, like, Hosea is a good example of that being lived out as a living prophecy. You see that how far Israel had fallen. But you see the picture that heaven was saying, I want to buy Israel back from the depths that she had fallen. But, you know, the picture, Hosea, and the picture that you have of the prodigal son, the picture of the song of Moshe, what the picture you get is that there is a height to which Israel was lifted and the Lord put Israel in this great position. Israel didn't seem to think that was something worthy to retain and ran away from its position, ran away from its, um, you could say, its commission what it was supposed to be put together for. Well, what happens when you have um, a person, a person who gets to a situation where they don't even know what they, who they are anymore? We you know, use terms like identity crisis. You know, sometimes when you reach a certain age, they call it a midlife crisis where you reach an age and you're wondering, well, what have I done with my whole life? Uh, who am I? Any, you know, you think, well, I've just wasted my entire life. And so you want to go throw out everything of where you're at right now and go chase some other dream that you may have had when you were a young kid. Well, you know, it's... The old saying goes, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Well, that is one of the key lessons of the Song of Moshe is, is that realize what the Lord has given you, Israel. Realize what, you, what you've been given. But realize also that what you've been given is not just like a coat, and like a nice dinner jacket that you wear to a nice fancy restaurant. So you can say, wow, he's really dressed up. That's not what the ways of God are, to wear like a nice fancy coat, nice fancy get up. No, that's not what the ways of God are, because what happens with your proverbial nice dinner jacket? You can take it off, 
you know, you get some schmutz on it or something or other, and then you have to either try to clean it or throw it out or when it gets too bad. It's external. You take it off. You might forget about it. You might say, oh, it's getting too hot. You leave it on a chair and you walk away and forget, forget it or something like that. And gone. So if that's the way we treat the commission that we get from heaven, that's, you know, Israel is like a nice dinner jacket that you wear. And then, you know, when you're done with your, quote, nice dinner, go to your fancy restaurant. And after you do that, then you hang up your jacket. Whew, oh, I'm glad I don't have to wear that thing again. But you see that that's, that can be often how we treat the things of God, that we treat it like something we wear like a dinner jacket. And then when we're done with our nice get-together, then we just take it off and walk away from it. But rather, what you see explained here in the Song of Moshe is like, no, this is your life. This is not a dinner jacket. This is who you actually are. Uh, yes, Larry. Yeah, there's another side to it, too. Um, like uh, in the fiddle of the roof, you know, when you do that, <laughs> yes. when he said, Lord, I know that we're the chosen people, but <laughs> couldn't you choose somebody else once in a while? Yes. Yeah, it, exactly. It's like, well, do you actually know why the Lord uh, chose you? And actually, what you, what you see in the Song of Moshe and explained throughout Devarim is the why the Lord chose Israel. It's explained a few different ways, one of which was, it's not because of how awesome you are that the Lord chose you, or how great you are, how numerous you were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, it's explained in kind of very blunt forms. You're, you're not the, the most numerous, you're not the greatest, the most powerful. That's not why the Lord chose you. The Lord chose you because of what was started with a special man, Avraham. And what is Avraham's hallmark? Faith. He trusted God. He believed God. And that was credited to him as righteousness, as walking down the right path. Yes, he's called God's friend. And you see examples of it where you see the presence of God actually having lunch with him and actually talking with him about what was going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's, you know, you see this, the conversation as it plays out there in Genesis is like, well, should I do this to Sodom and Gomorrah and not have any sort of conversation with it? And then you see also Avraham's reaction. It's like, well, shall not the judge of all the earth? Da 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 da. Yes. So thus, thus you're seeing is that it's, it's a part of a relationship between heaven and earth. That heaven is like, oh, I'm going to reveal what it is that's why everything is happening like this. So that, you know, Abraham doesn't just see smoke rising and go, what happened over there? You know, maybe they were just in the way of some galactic uh, occurrence where you just had bunch of asteroids come in and and take the place out oops they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time 
like, no, no, um, that smoke you see rising is rising for a reason over there. And in a very similar way, you see the day of the Lord also explained this way. In the prophets, in the book of Revelation, and Apostle Paul talks about the time of the apocalypse, the time of the day of the Lord. You see Yeshua talk about the day of the Lord. So it's like, when this stuff starts happening, you're not like, just strange coincidences all over the place. It's like, no. And you see that revealed in the Song of Moshe. You know, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. So it's like, you can see that when these things start happening, it's not just because of some random thing. And you also see that what happens is not out of God's control. That we see in the conquering of the land, that some pretty disturbing things happen to groups of people. And you're like, well, what, how, how could that possibly happen? But again, when he says, I kill and I make alive again. So for between death to bring back to life for the creator of heaven and earth is not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. So thus, when you see, well, where is the resurrection and the life? That's in God's camp. Outside of God's camp, outside of the kingdom of God, death, death, death. And, you know, death will be coming in a thousand ways to you and a thousand ways more. But when that death comes to you outside of the realm of God, there is no way back. There is no help. So that's one of the, the key lessons in here. And so thus when you, when you see that people of God have gone through uh, horrific things over time, and even to this day in many parts of the world, the people of God are going through horrendous persecution. Horrendous pressure is going on all over the world right now. But what do you put your trust in? Do you put your trust in, I must grab a hold of every last little bit of my life? Or is it that, okay, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. You don't stress over it anymore. And one of the, one of the things that is an uh, interesting aspect of the prayer called, uh, traditional prayer called Adon Olam, which means, you know, the uh, Lord of the Lord of the worlds. And the way it ends is basically, you know, I can go to sleep and I can wake up and I can lie down in death because what? Because I will rise again. So thus, it's like, you can go down into sleep at night because without fear. Because, you know, I frankly had a period in my life where I was afraid to go to sleep because something, I experienced something pretty tragic 
And it was like, I thought, if I go into sleep, I'm not going to wake up again. So horrific fear. But, you know, when you get finally past that point, it's like, okay, you trust, you go to sleep, you will wake up again. And thus, when you get into the Gospels and you see Yeshua having this conversation with people on a regular basis with the healings, and he goes in, they say, well, she's just sleepy, or he's asleep. And you're like, well, they misunderstood and said, well, if he's sleeping, just wake him up again. Finally, just had to level and said, no, he's, she's dead. But the power of God, that is not an issue. So the power of God just went in and said, little girl, get up. And she got up. So where then do you put your trust in life? You put your trust in the things that are just pretty temporary because you know what happens with bullies. They can be a bully for a period of time until what? The next bully comes along and takes their place. But we see in the people of God and we see in people through time that those who have something that cannot be broken by a bully those are the people who have the real strength. You know, you see that's happened like in times and just in our American history where you had during the time period of uh, the civil rights battles where people were just doing horrific things to people just because of what? They have more melanin, their skin is darker than somebody else. So then you just do horrific things to them. But one of the reactions that was pushed into Martin Luther King Jr. taught his folk is like, hey, don't push back on it. Because why? Makes, it makes it worse. But the evil that was crashing against that was exposed for what it was. It was exposed as being just horrifically nasty. People on the outside saw it. It was a witness to it. You know, you see similar advice that the Apostle Paul gives when he's talking to some of the congregations. And, you know, it was like, they're, you guys are actually battling it out in courts and suing each other right and left in secular courts over matters between believers, suing each other. And, well, what is an outsider supposed to think about this? You guys, you guys are no different than anybody else. You know, you come together and you say you're part of the people of God and that the power of God has transformed you. And you're just behaving like everybody else, maybe even worse, and attacking each other. So that's one of the things that you see then amplified further. Well, if you can work together inside of the body of believers, then why can't you just take that out further to where people will see what happens to the believers and how they respond? And that will be a witness. That's what you saw here in the Song of Moshe. The people will see on the outside what happens. They will also see the deliverance of the Lord when the Lord brings back Israel 
from what looks like a divine stomp down that Israel has been crushed and Israel is no more. But what happens? The Lord brings back Israel from the dead. You see it foretold like in Ezekiel 37, the, the, the famous prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. You see that great picture, and that you see in Ezekiel 36 and 37, who is that a witness for? The world. People will see that and say, that's God at work. That is God at work to bring back someone from the dead, to bring back people from the dead. So as we kind of look into this particular passage, of, uh, we see that this restoration is really possible only because the Lord is covering over the behavior of Israel. Israel's behavior was atrocious after all that the Lord had done, freeing Israel from the land of bondage, taking them out, taking them through the sea, taking them to the mountain, water from the rock, bread from heaven, keeping, as we saw, we're going through numbers, keeping all of the wild animals away from in the midst of it. Even in all that, and you're just like, ah, okay, it's kind of boring. What, what else is on the other channels? Where's, where's the, where's the, uh, you know, the Canaan channel? Yes, uh, that's, that's more interesting. It's got more car, car crashes in it and explosions, and a lot more interesting. But what we see as we kind of go into the Song of Moshe, it, oh, sorry, before we head on, Deborah, yes, We go were ahead. having a discussion in a Sabbath school class this morning about when God said in Hebrews that they would not enter my rest. And, you know, we were coming up thinking that is, you know, uh, what possibly could have happened for them to see all the miracles to come down, all the things that they've seen, you know, something happened to them. Uh, I thought Stockholm Syndrome or something. I mean, were they uh, all that, that God had displayed and all the things that they did, you know, Mm. Uh, we say, oh, well, we wouldn't do that. We don't know because yeah. something obviously so horrific happened to them. Well, that one of the things that, that is I mean? um, in Hebrews 3 and 4 where that's discussed, especially Hebrews 3, is um, it, that quotation that's the, I swore my wrath, they will not enter my rest. That comes from Psalm 95. And when you go back to Psalm 95, that is referring to Exodus chapter 17, which Masa and Meribah, I think we just read about that, didn't we, here in this particular Song of Moshe again. That was a very, very big deal. Because in Exodus 17, the punchline of that particular passage was what? Uh, we don't have what we, we think we need. Oh, we're, we're toast. Um, hello, the cloud. Uh, hello, you know, the one who opened the sea. Yeah, maybe, maybe that would be helpful for some, something like this. But their question was, is God with us or not? That was the issue. That was the issue. Is God with us or not? Because when they went up, and then you see later described in Numbers, 
when they sent the 12 spies in, they got 10 reports back that said, no, we can't do it. You got two, one of which is the guy that we see here in the holy handoff at the end of Deuteronomy, Yehoshua. They said, hey, the Lord is with us. We can do it. So they're answering the question back in Exodus 37. Is the Lord with us or not? Caleb, Yahushua, were saying, yeah, he's with us. Yeah, he's got this. We just follow him. Follow him in, and he's got this. The Lord will fight for us. So thus, when it's like, I swore my wrath, they won't enter my rest. And that's why that generation had to get the reset button. Because that generation was not faith-based. Thus, you can see what Yeshua is getting at when he talked about that in John. It's like, you know, they died in the desert. Because what? They didn't what? They didn't combine it. They got the bread from heaven, but they didn't combine it with what? Trust. Faith, otherwise. Known as faith. We haven't seen any miracles. All of us that are walking. All of us. We are faith-based, aren't yeah. we? Because we well, haven't seen anything that they've it's seen. It's always been faith-based. You know, it's kind of like what we were going through during um, Yom Kippur and just kind of going through the Yom Kippur service as it's described there in, Le- in Leviticus 16. It is completely faith-based because what are you doing? You are humbling yourself on that day, but you're trusting, you're trusting that the the high priest has it together, that the high priest is actually doing his job, and that what the high priest is actually involved with is actually a part of a rescue plan from heaven. So trust, 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 down all the way. It's faith-based all the way, down. So, yes, Alex. When you mentioned that about the high priest, do you ever think that where the guy goes in and shuts <laughs> the thing and stupid people he goes back and takes a nap right that's what he's doing behind the curtain <laughs> he's, I mean, that's yeah. what i assumed the, the the man behind the curtain yeah well if 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 all that you were doing was you know punching 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 a clock and there's and there's just an empty box there then yeah that would be something you would actually think of but if you were actually kind of in service for the creator of heaven and earth you had the example back in Leviticus 10, <laughs> you know, uh, Nadab and Abihu, and uh, they're not really treating the presence of God with respect and saying, well, I can just do whatever I want, just do it my own way, you know. I did it my way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that was the example then for the high priesthood to follow. It's like you don't treat this, yeah, you don't you don't treat this with uh, with any sort of flippant respect. Uh, Piran, I'm sorry, did you? Yeah, I think this is such a message of hope that yes, for all the people that don't consider themselves the chosen, that God is showing so much mercy to the people He chose that rejected Him and went their own way, wanted to be like everybody else, everyone else should take such hope in that for the undying, unwavering love he has for creation. Amen. Yes. Yeah, very very much so. 
Now, one of the things that you know is kind of good to to look at. We've on occasion talked about um, peering under the hood of what's going on in the in the language underneath it. And one of the things we see in the Song of Moshe is uh, specifically that this is what they call a chiasmus, or as it's described in 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 Hebrew, is an atbash, which is just a atbash. Just means you know olav tov, you know bet sheen, meaning that it is a structure where um, parts are paired with each other of a passage. And they kind of point the reader to a particular point in the passage. So when you look at this particular chapter, and it actually stretches from uh, chapter 31, 30, and it goes through 32, the end of chapter 32. And you see that beginning parts and the ending parts, the words of this song. And you see kind of it moves in further 32, 4, a faithful God without deceit paired with 32.39, there is no God besides me. And pair it again with chapter 32, verse 18, you forgot the God who gave you birth. And that is paired with chapter 32, verse 27, these foes would mistakenly boast. So you see that pairing, forgetting on one side, being a mockery on the other side. And it all directs down to this point where you see it in uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 19 through 26, where it's talking about, well, the wrath of God is poured out here. So the wrath of God is the focus part of the Song of Moses. But that is not where it ends, as you see. So the point for Israel is like, this downhill slide that you're going to go on because you decide that the Lord is too boring, whatever, for you, that's going to end in one particular place. It's going to end with the wrath of God. And not just because of the smite button and some sort of vindictive thing that, okay, I didn't get my way, so heaven is just going to hit the smite button. What is Israel in the world? There's guidance, the teachers. They are a light for the world. They are, you could call it a life preserver, a life boat for the world that heaven has thrown into the world. Because why? You know, Apostle Paul talks about Israel's been entrusted with the oracles of God to preserve them, to propagate them down through time. So the reason why we have them today is because people said, hey, these need to be protected. These need to be copied. These need to be passed down from generation to generation, down to us. So that is a lifeboat for the entire world, that we have the words of God now preserved to us you know, 3,000, 3,500 years later. That's, that's a long time. And through all kinds of twists and turns, of U.S. and world history that have happened. Empires have risen and fallen, and in the midst of this, God's word has gone down to us. Yeah, yes, Larry. I think maybe they were also a bad example. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, what was that? What was that the, the, the old saying is that if you can't be a good example, be a stern warning. Yeah, yeah. Well, Israel is actually both. It, 
you get in the word of God, the good example, and the stern warning packaged together. So you say, yeah, this is not just all propaganda about how great Israel is. This is like, yeah, Israel's just like everybody else. You, you suffer the same pulls on your emotions, your morality as everybody else. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, if you don't know any better, you're just, as the Apostle Paul talks about it, you're grasping around the dark. There's different moral systems that have come up, and some of them have hit on good points, and you'll see that, hey, those are aligned with what you see in the Bible, but a lot of it is just grasping in the dark. So thus, through Avraham and down through Israel as preserved to us, not just grasping about in the dark, who is God? Well, God reveals himself. This is what they call the tablets of the testimony. And as you see down in Revelation, it talks about that who are the people of God? The ones that have the trust of Yeshua and what? The testimony. So trust and testimony. Because trust, trust in what? Unless you have the testimony to actually trust in, what are you trusting in? I mean, some, some flim-flam guy can come up with something the next week and... Yeah, I mean, these people, people can come along and spin all kinds of yarns, and that's what, oh, that's the word of God today, oh, that's the word of God tomorrow. It just shifts and weaves and bobs and zigzags all over the place. And so, can you actually ever know who the creator of heaven and earth is? You have no idea. It doesn't just change tomorrow and this and that. But that's not what we have. We have... Yes, well, I change not. And that's because you have the testimonies that get preserved down through time to us. You have the, the, the faithful witnesses that have come down, Moshe, Yoshua, and then down. And then to, finally, you have, as it talks about in Hebrews, that you know, finally, after all the prophets and such, then you have the Son of God actually coming as the direct representation of heaven. So you now have the true testimony of who God is and what God wants. So then you're left with you're left with a choice. Do I go that way or not go that way? Because it's not a question anymore of um, which way to go or not. But we have a big problem in the world. And we've had a big problem since the beginning of the world. And that is the adversary, the father of lies. And there's always the did God say, did God, I mean, that's been going since the garden. Did God say, did God really say? So that part of the testimony of God being out there is always being cast into doubt. So you do have the true testimony but then there's always some blah, 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 blah in your ear going, did God really say this? Is this really the word of God? You know, because I may want to do something else. Is it, you know, people over here seem to be saying something different. Uh, yes, Rose. Did not Christ warn of teaching of the doctrines of the commandments of men? Yes, that's so correct. So once you take your eye off the word of God and you want to listen to that guy over here or this mm. woman over there or... You know, Christ warned us about that. Well, you know, to 
to be uh, perfectly fair about that, in, in Mark chapter 7 where that, that comes up, you know, you were ta- teaching for doctrine, the commandments of men, that these instructions, disciplines, uh, traditions, you might call them, they can be helpful as long as they're not doctrine, saying this is the testimony of God. Here you say, okay, these are... From churches today are allowing so much uh, filth to come in. Oh, well, we're, we're going to let this guy come in and, and, and we're going we're gonna to work with him and help him. You know, Christ said, the first thing he said is repent. Mm. He didn't say come on in and then repent. He said repent. He was pretty clear about that. Mm-hmm. And the churches today are allowing too much into the, to the body of Christ. Yeah, because one of the... One of the, the warnings that you see uh, that, that comes through the, through the word, and you see it like in Galatians 6, 1, where Paul is warning the congreg- congregation in Galatia. It's like, great, you want to help people, but beware that they don't drag you down too. You know, we talked about the, the thing of life-saving, you know, that you have to be very careful that who you're trying to help doesn't drag you down as well. So that's, that's fantastic if you want to go out to help. And Yeshua told it a quite a different way with a parable where he was talking about don't throw your pearls before swine or what? They may turn and pounce on you. Turn and pounce upon you. Now that, that uh, inclination and wanting to help, that's great. But you just have to be careful. Or as Yeshua also put it, you know, be as wise as serpents or cunning as serpents, but as innocent as doves. So, you know, you're not trying to get even. You're not trying to just do this and that and the other. You are just being very, very careful. You are being kind of like, kind of like a, um, in, in sort of a military way, you're just anticipating the worst outcomes of it, but hoping for the best outcomes of it. Hoping for the best, but anticipating the worst. Because, I mean, even the martyrs have done that. All the great martyrs that you see, they knew what they would be facing, but they still went into it anyway. They still went into it anyway. Even though they knew, yeah, okay, this, this could be death. Maybe this is surely death. But they went into it anyway. They're not just completely naive of, of what may happen because of it. So the other thing we want to uh, get into is, you know, it's talked about the Song of Moses. But there's also, when you get into the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 15, where it talks about another song. That these are kind of like, you might say, harmony, uh, counterpoint, you might say, to each other. The Song of Moshe and the Song of the Lamb. So, in this particular passage, uh, starting out in Revelation chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, a great marvelous seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. 
and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Part of that is a quotation from Psalm 86, verse 9. So what you see in there, as you say, this is the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Well, we just read a Song of Moses, Song of Moshe. We just read that in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. So one of the hallmarks you see of this um, chorus, the medley, you might say, of the two, the Song of Moses, Song of the Lamb, great and marvelous are your works. That was part of what the recounting was to the second generation going into the land when Moshe was reminding them, like, do you remember what the Lord did for Israel, taking Israel out of Egypt? Do you remember all that? Do you remember being sustained in the midst of this? So what do you do in that situation? Do you fear, as it says here, that the ones who are singing the song of Moshe and the song of the Lamb, they don't fear. They're not, you know, are you with this or not? No, they, they don't fear what's coming at them because they know what? The Lord is with them. And they also are glorifying. Again, that's you know, coming from Kavod, the idea of putting weight upon something. So they are saying, yes, you are worthy of having great weight and honor. Not, you know, you are our adversary. Why do you keep dragging us away from all the good food we had back in Egypt? In, you know, fast times, great times in Egypt. It was just wonderful. It was wonderful. It was, we had so much fun. It was, it was great. Yeah. So the idea of, and it's very interesting you do bring up that point about people crying out. You know, do you even realize that you are in bondage and you are you crying out for relief. And that was a part of what Israel's cry was because when Moshe met the Lord there at the burning bush, what did the Lord say to Moshe? I have, well, take off your shoes, yes. You're holy ground. This isn't, you're not just wandering around to random uh, came across randomly some bush that's on fire. No, you're in the presence of the creator of heaven and earth here. So, but he also went on to say, I have heard, I've heard about this, the cry that's gone up. And one of the hallmarks of the people of God are the ones that like weep and cry over what the situation is. Oh, Lord, help. Oshana. Save us. Save us. Save us. And you see the, the cries that, that came out when Yeshua was going into the temple, you know, leading up to um, that's Pesach, the Passover, where he went to the crucifixion. They were crying out, Hoshana, to the God of David. 
you know, it's puzzled a number of people over time because that's normally what you would say around the time of Sukkot. Usually the idea of Sukkot and Hoshana, and you get up to the Hoshana Rabbah, the Hoshana Rabbah is, or the great Hosanna, the great exaltation, that's on the seventh day of Sukkot. And as it's, you know, we see recorded there in John chapter 6, where Yeshua went up into the temple on, it says, the greatest day of the festival. That's, that's uh, Hoshana Rabbah, the great day. And that is where you would be having the great blessing. And, and at that time, they had brought in the tradition of the water drawing and water pouring on the altar. So this was a time that you would normally be expecting the Hoshana, Hosanna being cried out by people at tabernacles. But the tabernacles was also a time of what? Reestablishment. Because what happened during Sukkot? First temple, second temple, and Hanukkah, only because when you read Maccabees, the reason why Hanukkah is eight days is because they couldn't celebrate Sukkot that year. So they celebrated two months late for eight days because that's when they finally got the temple back into operation. So Sukkot, the imagery of Sukkot, of that idea of Hoshana was, hey, save us. So thus, when you see the picture of people saying, hey, is this really, is this really the one that comes as David, sit on the throne, the Messiah? Hoshana, save us! Yes, Alex. Uh, it was, you know, I, I think not enough emphasis is put on, at least to modern Christians, how uh, important the pollution of the temple was, uh, and that was very bad at that time. Yeah. They're talking about Herodians, who did all the wrong things, maritally and otherwise, uh, they they were in charge of the temple. Mm -hmm. So when Yeshua or and, and later his brother went in there, James, they had to get rid of these guys because yes. they were saying, you know, yes. this is bad. And that's the Maccabees and all that. They were they were over the top with trying to get rid of these guys. In there. Yeah. Oh my god! So, well, there was a definitely a Herodias stench in the temple at the yes. time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So thus, when you see the picture of the Song of Moshe, the Song of the Lamb, these are about people who are singing about what? How great the Lord is. The Lord is worthy of trust. And no matter what sort of situations you're going through, where is, you know, like you say in Psalm 121, you lift your eyes up to the hills, where does my help come from? Comes from the Lord creator of heaven and earth where do you actually put your your trust in so when we see then this this picture of the song of moshe the song of the lamb they're not in contention this is not like the idea that many people get from like the uh, sermon on the mount in, in matthew 5 through 7 where you have the it's come to be called in theological circles the 
the six antitheses where, you know, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. So thus, you have, you know, the lamb is at war with Moses. No. They're singing the same tune. They're harmonizing with each other. Not at war with each other. They're not, you know, being dissonant with each other. They are harmonizing with each other. Both of the message of true salvation. What does the Lamb bring? Brings the covering of sins, transgressions, and iniquities. We just celebrated that. But also, so that's what? That's cleansing you. You are now clean. You are, can be transparent before God. Because why? Lord remembers those iniquities no more. So you are transparent before God. So that's one thing the Lamb does. But what is the other thing the Lamb does? The Lamb saves you on the inside, but the Lamb also does what? Saves you on the outside. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's revealing. When it's talking about this is a revelation of Yeshua. This is a revelation of the lamb coming what? Is cute and cuddly and uh no. Both as a as a um one who is going to take charge of the planet, finally bring all of the lies, deceptions, death, pain, suffering, everything to an end. But also, as you see, the lamb who was slain. So again, you see that picture. The one who, sa- who saves you from within, the one who saves you on the outside, too. Saves everything. Uh, yes, Larry. I think I've heard that it said that that but could also be and. And so he could be just saying, you heard it said thus, and I say unto you. Because that's what he's really doing, adding to it making it more personal to his disciples. Yeah, and that's one of those things that uh, when you look under the hood a bit of how uh, discourse was there in, around the first century, that was a common way that um, teachers of Israel would do things. They would say, da-da-da-da, and something from the Torah, or something from tradition, or something general practice. And I say to you, so this is the teaching on that particular thing. So, and you see that it's in some cases where Yeshua is quoting a practices that were just completely twisting of the Torah, like the whole thing about marriage and, you know, marriage for any reason whatsoever. And it's like, uh, or divorce, I mean, divorce for any reason whatsoever. And he's like, uh, no, this is not a just, you know, marriage of convenience sort of thing. This is, uh, do you want to remember even where, where marriage comes from? This is not about you. This is about, really, the planet and the planet radiating out from you because the whole part of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? A bunch of, as some people today call, useless eaters? Or filling the people with people who are connected with God and enrich the planet by their presence. It's a very different view of who people are. Not people as a curse, but people as a blessing. Yes, uh, Alex. Um, 
again with the, all the reading I've been doing at that about that time period, that Hosanna, save us. Are they, you know, Yeshua? We, you know, as an early Christian, you just see him as here and everybody else here. Well, they were kind of a group. They were a little more cohesive than that. I think, you know, even his mother, uh, they they were with him, but they were with a movement that was, hey, save us from this corrupt temple. Maybe that's what they were saying. And yeah, again, and, a lot of them were kind of like, maybe he's a messiah, maybe he's not, but he's with us. That mm-hmm. we're go- he's got to get this corruption out of the temple because we're not being forgiven because these jokers are in there. God isn't listening to us because you can't have these impure people in the temple or it's null and void. Is that right? Yeah, and you, you see that from the passage we, we, we read earlier today in Acts chapter 1, where it's like, you know, is it now you're going to bring the kingdom? You know, are you coming now to fix it right now? And he's like, that's, that's the father's prerogative is to when that day comes. But... The true way to fix it, yes, it has come. And coming with the Spirit of God with power, yes, that has come. And that is a part of what you 11 there at the time and those with them, that is your job to be a big part of that part happening in the world. So, yeah, okay, you want... It's it's a, a little bit of like when... Um, Yeshua was doing the feedings of the mass groups of people. And he's saying, you know, did you come just because you were hungry? Um, go for the bread that really is not just going to fill you up for the moment, but stuff that is going to fill you up for life. Yeah, <laughs> take, take better. Yeah, give, me, give me that bread. Yes. And, and like in, you know, in John 4 with the Samaritan woman, you know, saying, Hey, you know, do you want to come to the well all the time, or do you want water that will never leave you thirsty again? And she's like, "Yeah, give me that." And so when he laid out who he was and what he was teaching about, that whole talking about the outpouring of the spirit, bingo, she got it. And then you see it spread like wildfire there and. Samaria, which was probably flabbergasting for all of the uh, the twelve are with them and all the other disciples that were with them. It's like it was what you're taught that the Samaritans were a bunch of heathen half breeds who have their own temple or their own yeah it was pretty much their own temple, their own practices, even their own version of the Pentateuch, and. They're kind of doing their own thing, and they just corrupted and uh, debased everything that Moshe had taught. So you're like, now you see the, the power of God spreading like wildfire in Samaria. You know, it should also ring your bells uh, going off in your head about uh, Yonah, Jonah, up there in Nineveh. You know, he didn't want to go. And he got there, kept being reluctant, this and that and the other. But what when he went through, finally, you know, pushed, nudged, and actually spit out into his mission, what happened with his message? They're even 
getting the animals into repentance, signs of repentance, saying we are just completely in repentance. So, you know, you can imagine Yonah, there's like, oh my, look at what's happening here. These heathens here in Nineveh, they're turning around. Why are my people not turning around like this? So, yeah, yeah, why are my people not turning around about this? Yeah, very, very mad. Yeah, taking it out on the plant that was shading him. So, that is uh, kind of where we're going to uh, take things here. Uh, actually, we'll just uh, close things out with um, a couple of the passages that we, we touched on. We touched a little bit on Acts uh, chapter 1, but we're just going to end things here with the passage we looked at in John chapter 6, verses uh, 26 through 35. And you see there he's talking about um, bread from heaven. And you see that one of the things that Yeshua is referencing when you go back and you look under the hood again is passages like in Exodus 16, verses 4 and 15, Numbers chapter 11, verse 8. These are passages that talked about bread coming down from heaven, bread coming down from heaven, that this is um, the outpouring of God, God's um, favor, God's mercy upon the people of God, that this bread is coming down from heaven. And this bread of life discourse starts in verse 22 of chapter 6 in John and goes all the way down through 71. So it's a very long discourse that he's having in the back and forth and back and forth, you know, to the point of uh, eating my flesh. And that got to be a bit uh, unnerving for people because they weren't quite following where he was going with this illustration. But you, you could have could have seen perhaps where he was going with, you know, I am the bread of life thing that, you know, you need to um, take a look beyond just what's on the surface to what else is actually in play here. But this discourse is showing in this uh, passage, this connection between Egypt, the matzah, the unleavened bread of Passover, and the daily bread or the six days a week bread of manna. And I guess you could say seven days worth of manna because you get double on the sixth day to last you through the seventh day, to last you through Shabbat. But what you end up seeing is, is that, well, what, are, what is the unleavened bread and what is the manna all about? The unleavened bread is connected when you go through Passover. It's all about what? Originally, why was it unleavened bread? Haste. You get out fast. The deliverance of God is there. You get out. You follow your leader and you get out. You get out. You leave your house of bondage. You don't look back. You go with haste. And then with the daily bread, this is like, don't worry how far you're going because why? He's going to provide. It will be provided how far you ever you need to go on the journey. <laughs> so one of the things that you see is, is that uh, also on the daily bread aspect of it, it's also a sign of like, this is, 
heaven actually cares actually cares not just going to fling you out into the desert but actually cares about the things that really matter in life things yes physical sustainment but also the core of who you are because what what do you often hear all the time about people who are survive things who are survivors of some horrific um accident or being stranded somewhere what gets them through their faith what is core inside of them that's what gets them through so they don't give up they don't give up they they just keep moving forward on it so and you see as it goes down in this passage as we ended out here in verse 35 and it talks about i am the bread of life this is one of several of these quotations you see in the gospel of john chapter 1 and chapter 6 and chapter 8 where you see these i am passages there's several of those passages throughout the gospel of john and you'll see especially when you um See, one of the passages where it talks about, you know, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10. That language is, and when you take like the Greek rendition and you go back into the Septuagint, it is identical to where you see, you know, I am the Lord and reveals his name there in, in Exodus chapter 3. So you get this picture that why were they so angry at Yeshua when he was making these statements? They knew what he was saying. They knew that this was saying the I am is there. So when you see the gospel writers talking about, hey, this is the, the, the direct representation of heaven. You know, this is, you, you see uh, Jewish writers have danced around this for centuries with the idea of the Shekhinah. What is the presence, the dwelling of God? That was there in the tabernacle. What is that? It shows up various places. What is that? The Shekhinah glory. Yes. So when you see the Mashiach called what? The glory of Israel. Yeshua, the glory of the Father. But the point is, is that you see this representation. We're coming up on Sukkot that this is about the Lord wanting to dwell with his people. That's why the tabernacle was built. That's why the temple would be built. And so the Lord would place his name there, and the presence of the Lord would be in the midst of the people. And that is thus when you see John chapter 1, come around to it again, verse 14, where he's saying, you know, the word became flesh, and skinud, as it is in Greek pitched his tent among the people. So just like the tabernacle of Israel, just like the temple, that the dwelling place of God would be among mankind. So going back to the question we have there of uh, Hebrews 3, swore my wrath they would not enter my rest, and that goes back to Psalm 95, which goes back to Exodus 17. And the question, is the Lord with us or not? 
One of the key things about Sukkot and about the Mashiach is that it answers the question, is the Lord with us or not? Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, that's the answer. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.